Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Dad's in the room, real quick. Um, well, I'm Peter, for those of you who are new with us. I'm a senior pastor here. Uh, Dad's in the room. So I just want you to, I, I want to call your attention to something that we have in our room. Um, it's that photo booth in the back. And that's a very special photo booth because what I, my intention was to not have a photo booth for Father's Day, right? My gift to fathers was not having to take a picture. And we're sitting in our staff meeting as Jeff is like, hey, do you want me to put together a photo booth? And like, I wasn't sold. And he's just like, but you know, I have a vision for it. And I was like, well, at that point, I'm sold. Like, I got to see what you come up with at that point, right? Um, and so uh, uh, I didn't ask him what it was going to be or anything like that. And then Stephanie started asking the same question. Like, and she was like, do you want, you want me to find maybe like some ladies to help you put that photo booth together? And Jeff looked at her deadpan. I kid you not. I was just like, that's exactly what I do not need. Um, and so dad's, if you're here today and you want to take a photo, go ahead. If not, it's your day. I give you permission to opt out and just leave. But just know, Jeff had a very real vision that he has made come to life all on his own. So uh, tell him good job, if you will, uh, if you see him. Uh, but all that to be said, uh, happy Father's Day, dads. We're glad you're, uh, you're with us in the house, and we're so glad that we got to dedicate kiddos this morning. But we're, uh, we're continuing on in the book of Mark. It's Mark chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles or you have an app on your device or whatever, feel free to click that open um, as, uh, as well. And as I was thinking about Father's Day, I was like, what should I preach on for Father's Day? And I decided to just go with demonic possession. Um, and so that's what we're dealing with today. Um, and that uh, <laughs> wasn't why I chose it. That's just what we happen, happen to be in. But it is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Um, the, uh, this is the, the story of the demoniac. Um, and uh, we, we've read it. We, I've actually preached through this a couple different times since I've been here. This will be the third time we've actually preached through this text. And Anytime you preach through a text, um, it, it kind of feels the same way as as you read through a text, right? Like think back to January when all of you decided that you were going to read through the Bible in a year, right? And uh, you made it to like January 16th, congratulations. But when you start every single year, it always starts the same way with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God, right? And you're like, what else can I possibly get out of these first 16 chapters of the Bible? Because I always end on January 16th for some reason, whatever that is, right? Um, and then all of a sudden you're reading and something hits you in a new way. Something for the first time, you're like, wow, I've never thought about that verse that way, or I've never, I've never thought, thought through the implication of the verse or, or read it in that specific way. That's actually a theological concept. Um, and so as I was studying and going through um, all of my ordination process, one of the things that I had to learn about was this idea of, of uh, illumination is the theological term where you could read through a text over and over and over again. You could read through a specific portion of scripture for the 50th time, and it will mean the same thing 50 times in a row. But then on the 51st, the Holy Spirit, in a way that only he can do, is able to illuminate, right, that text for you to be able to see it in a brand new way. And so as I was thinking through Mark chapter 5, and I was like, man, I just don't know if I, I, I should do the same sermon I preached on in this passage again, um, and so as I was praying through it and working through it, I really felt like the Holy Spirit gave me, gave me something fresh and new um, um, with it. And so before we get to scripture, though, I just want to share a quick story. Uh, me and my friend, we were, uh, I think, 20, 20 21, um, and we were about to be engaged, not to each other, to our own separate wives, okay? And clarity is important there. 
Um, and, uh, and so we decided what better thing that we could possibly do than go and do like man stuff out in the wilderness. Let's go tackle some portion of the Sierra Nevada mountain range for the first time. So like, yep. And we knew just enough about backpacking to be dangerous, not enough to be good, right? And so we're, we're planning this whole trip and, and we're going to do car camping the first night up in Tuolumne Meadows so you can get acclimated to the elevation change because if you just start hiking up at really, really like backcountry heights, you're, you're going to get dizzy, possibly throw up, all these things, elevation sickness, right? Um, and so, uh, so we stayed the night there and the next morning we were off. It was like 7 a.m. We were cruising ready to go. And um, one of the things that you do when you're young is you do stupid things. And so we had packed our packs as heavy as we could possibly pack our packs, like 80 pound packs for a four day trip. Absolutely ridiculous. We, we brought two hatchets for a three day trip, right? I mean, who does that? Like, like a four, four foot log of salami, because why not? Um, and, and so we're hiking up and, and we get back around um, this peak. It's called Ragged Peak. And we had a GPS and this is like 2003, 2004. And the GPS at that point um, was just starting to get decent, like reliable enough, right? And so we have this GPS to a sheep camp that we're going to make, make our base camp at. And from that spot, we're going to do all of these little day hikes. And so we get there, we set the GPS, this is home, right? And then we start doing all these different day hikes. We hike up to Roosevelt Lake one day and we jump in and there's snow all around it because you jump in because that's man stuff, right? And then, and then we did a couple other little hikes. And the last day, the day before we left, we decided that we were going to summit uh, Mount Kness is what it's called. And so Mount Kness is the third highest peak in Yosemite, um, Yosemite National Park. And so the peak is almost at 13,000 feet. It's like 12,000, almost 600, I think. And so it's pretty high up there. And so we have our, our, our ice axes because there's still ice around, even though it's January. And so we're cruising and we get up there and we summit and man, it's so good. We have lunch up there, right? We take a nap up there because that's what you do on hikes. And then it's starting to, the sun's starting to go, come down a little bit. So we're like, hey, we should probably head back. And so we start heading back and then we get on the GPS to know where we have a marked spot because there's no road markings in the backcountry of Yosemite. And, and so we start looking at it and it cannot find our spot. It is, it, like, it is a disaster. And so we are, we are completely and totally lost. We have eaten all of our food. We're at least well rested because we took a nap. Okay, we're running low on water and it is getting dark in the backcountry. That's kind of terrifying, right? I mean, at least for me, at that point, I hadn't done a lot of hiking. I hadn't done a lot of backpacking. And so because I was like, this is terrible, I'm going to die out here. And at that point, after I had that thought, my friend Caleb looks down in the mud and he sees fresh mountain lion tracks. And like a best friend, he knows I'm already nervous. And so he's like, Pete, hey, Pete, come check this out. These are mountain lion tracks. They look pretty new. I'm like, I already think I'm going to die out here. Now I'm being hunted out here as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so we're going around. We're going around. It keeps getting darker. All of a sudden, it's dark. We don't have flashlights with us because this is a day hike. Why would you bring flashlights on a day hike, right? And so eventually, we get our GPS to start working. We, we make it back to our base camp, and we, we get a fire started. I'm sitting there eating uh, probably slices of salami from the four-foot log that we brought and I thought to myself, I am so glad that that is done. I'm so glad this is over. And then the next day we get up, we pack up all of our stuff, and we just got home as quickly as we could because I had a very real thought in my head, I'm going to die out here. This is how people die. I saw the finiteness of my life right? And all of a sudden, I'm coming home and I'm thinking, you know what? I am going to get engaged to Sarah and I am going to get married and I am going to have all of the babies, which we almost accomplished, by the way. And I thought to myself, 
man, my life is short. My life is finite. And all of us at some point are going to have to come to terms with that. All of us at some point are going to have to come to terms with the fact that, that yes, we are aging. Yes, we're going to die. Even as we celebrate new life, children, babies up here, we recognize that also means that the rest of us are continuing to age, right? And so the question becomes, what is it that we do with the life that God has given us in the first place? The disciples at this point uh, in, in the book of Mark, just before this, they had stepped out of a boat or they had stepped onto a boat and they were sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And there are hurricane force winds at this point. The disciples are terrified. They're freaking out. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing at this point. And so they did the only thing they thought that they should do is wake up Jesus like Jesus we're going to die out here. Don't you care enough about the fact that we're going to die out here? Why don't you save us? Jesus stands up. He's like, you have no faith. He calms the wind. He calms the storm. That whole thing finishes. And as that finishes, they are sailing across to this region where this story picks up. Okay, so I can imagine at this point, the disciples are like, I'm just glad that was over. I'm going to step onto dry land and think to myself, okay, I didn't die out there. And then something crazy happens, okay? It starts in verse 1 in chapter 5. It's a long portion of Scripture. We don't usually read all of this portion of Scripture. We're going to read it, and then we're going to kind of work our way back through. So it says this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. They're talking about the disciples and Jesus. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. When the people began to plead, or then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Okay, a lot of things to unpack there. But if you've been walking with us through the book of Mark so far, we have said that the book of Mark is all gas, no break, right? There's story after story, like three-verse story, four-verse story, five-verse story, all very, very in quick succession, okay? This is the longest story that we see in the book of Mark so far. So for some reason, Mark has decided that we need to take some time to unpack this entire thing. We also need to recognize something else. All of Jesus' disciples, Jesus included, were all Jewish. Okay? At the time, uh, according to Jewish culture, there were two types of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. If you weren't Jewish, you were Gentile. 
Okay, so all of Jesus's people, all of his disciples, they were all Jewish. They are now sailing over across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to a region that would have been 100% Gentile. Okay, this region is called the Decapolis. Okay, we'll get to a little bit more of that in just a second. Last thing we need to understand about this story is that the Jews had to keep themselves what was called ceremonial, ceremonially clean. Meaning that there were specific things they could not do, specific things they could not partake in. They couldn't eat pork, okay? They, they couldn't touch dead people or, or, or be around dead things. And there were specific things, and there's a whole bunch of books, or there's a whole bunch of law in the, in the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 11 talks about not being able to eat pork and that sort of thing. Um, that outlines all of the things that the Jewish people were not allowed to do. So these Jews who had just been through this crazy hurricane storm who were landing thinking, I am glad that is over, now encounter a demon-possessed man who's not wearing any clothes, who is most likely very dirty, and has cuts all over his body from the stones that he was using to cut himself. So I just think to myself, how quickly do they go from man, I'm so happy to be here to be like, you know what? I'm gonna go back to the hurricane. I would much rather deal with that than what I'm about to deal with. Because what they see is, is this man is now proclaimed unclean to these Jewish people in four specific ways. The four ways are, he, the first one is he had an unclean spirit. It says that in the text. He had an unclean spirit. The second thing that, that would have shown this man to be ceremonial and clean is he lived among the tombs. Okay, when we think of tombs, we think of cemeteries, right? We go to a cemetery, someone gets buried, and, and eventually grass covers that whole area again, and it's done, and, and we never have to worry about, uh, you know, touching anything that is dead out in those regions. These regions were different. Burial back in the day was different. These tombs were caves, a lot of which remained open. And so people would go and they would, you know, wrap their loved ones in the different linens. They would do their ceremony and they would put them into these tombs, into these caves. That is where this guy was living amongst the dead. Okay? This would have been a massive deal for Jews to not even not touch the dead, but also not touch somebody who had touched the dead. Okay, so that's the second thing. They're ceremonial and clean the second way. The third thing, the Jews, specifically the Jews, they, they regarded Gentiles as unclean people. So again, the region that this is taking place in was called the Decapolis. There were 10 cities, Deca, right? Decapolis, there were 10 cities. They were all kind of close to each other, right next to each other. All of them would have been heavily Gentile. The way I kind of think about it is like the 99 corridor, you know what I mean? You got Kingsburg and then Selma and then Fowler and then you just kind of keep making your way up. It's city after city after city. That's kind of the same thing. Okay? In the same way that all of those cities kind of are the same on the 99 corridor, all of these kind of had the same makeup as well. So all of them would have been Gentile cities. And then uh, the, the last thing that we see is simply by the fact that these people were raising pigs. Okay, I had said, remember, Jews, they're not allowed to eat unclean animals, pigs being paramount to one of them. So dad, on Father's Day, you didn't get any bacon if you were Jewish. Okay? So all of these things were happening. And this is brand new ter territory for every single one of these disciples. None of these people, none of these disciples would have been used to this in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is taking them places they did not want to go. Jesus is taking them places that they didn't know what to expect. They didn't want to be there. And as I thought about this for a second, and as I thought about like what that means in our lives, this is probably very, very true, that God may be calling you places in your life that you don't want to go. 
Maybe, maybe places that are new or maybe unsettling to you, untested waters, if you will. And the disciples were literally living the exact same way. Thinking, Jesus, what, what are we doing here? It's kind of terrifying. Maybe a little bit, of, maybe a little bit exciting. Right? I was terrified when I saw the mountain lion tracks. Also kind of excited, right? What a sweet story I could tell if I saw the mountain lion, as long as it didn't eat me. Right? They didn't know what to expect. They didn't, they didn't want to be here, probably thinking this is crazy, but Jesus called them to follow him, even to places that they didn't want to go. So as we think about this story, I want you to think about it in those terms. Do you allow God to take you places you don't even want to go? Because if you have said yes to Jesus, if you've come to a, a saving faith in Jesus, then this is what he is going to call you to. Probably not a life of comfort. Actually, usually it's the exact opposite. A place of discomfort, but a place of obedience and reliance on him. So do you allow God to take you places you don't even want to go? And this is what Jesus is doing throughout the entire book of Mark. This, this kind of consistent march to the cross. This is the expansion of the kingdom of God because Jesus is going to continue to take the gospel to dark places. So I've, as I've preached on this before, as I've gone through those, those other couple messages that I've, I've talked about, I've talked about the implication this has for talking to other people about Jesus. We, talk, we, we use the phrase oikos, right? That God has both supernaturally and strategically placed these 8 to 15 people in your life specifically for you to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And so at the end of this story, it's really cool because you see this guy trying to get into the boat with Jesus. He's like, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 go home. Tell them everything that I did for you. And that's cool. That's oikos, right? I'm going to go home and tell them how Jesus has kind of transformed my life. But the interesting thing is in a couple chapters later, Jesus and all of his disciples, they go back to the capitalists, the region of the Gerasenes. And what they find there, when the first time they came, they find a demon-possessed man who's naked and, and crazy, who's running up to them, and, and we're going to hash that out in just a second. What they find the second time they come is droves of people coming out to meet Jesus and his disciples. Why? Because a demon-possessed man that Jesus took care of went back home and told his story told everybody what Jesus had done. And so when Jesus came back, everybody wanted to meet him as well. And so we're not going to camp on that, but that'll preach, right? I preached it twice. So anyway, today I want to talk about a little bit more underlying tensions, though, that probably don't get as much attention um, because it, it has to do with the different types of power that are at work in this story, right? Specifically piggybacking on last week's message where we talked about God is sovereign over everything, right? Jesus, Jesus was powerful over the natural world. This week, we get to see that Jesus has power over the supernatural world as well. Most scholars believe that Mark put these two stories back to back to show that Jesus had power over the natural as well as the supernatural, that God was powerful over a storm, as we've already seen, but God is also going to be all-powerful over this as well. So amongst it all, I want you to see that God is powerful over all things, both natural and supernatural. So let's think about the first part of it, the power of the demonic, Okay. I know, it's weird. We don't talk a lot about demons. We don't talk about a lot about angels. We don't talk a lot about even like Satan and that sort of thing. Okay? But one of the things that we need to come to recognize is that, that this, this supernatural world is indeed a real thing. It's very real. 
And we don't talk about it a lot. Actually, when, when I was going through my seminary process and when I had to get ordained, I had to write a whole piece of theology based on my understanding of angels, of demons, and of Satan. It's a theological piece called angelology. It's a great word. It's fun to say. And it literally means the study of angels. And so I had to, I had to like figure out what do all of these different things mean. And so as I was thinking through it, I think that the churches kind of fall into one of two camps. And I think we're honest today, our church probably falls into, into one camp that really, man, we're practical, pragmatic people. Any effect definitely has a cause and that cause probably isn't supernatural, right? Like if you, if you rear in somebody, it was because you were probably texting somebody else on your phone and you rear ended them. That's your fault. And we think to ourselves, we can just explain those things away. Things just happen in life. That's just the way that it kind of goes. And we almost kind of ignore it and assume that if we ignore it long enough, we can just assume that it's kind of not real, it's kind of not true, and we're just, we're just never going to talk about it. That's not a healthy place to be, and I recognize that. And that's usually where I land because I'm a practical, pragmatic person. And then on the other side, you have other denominations, other systems of belief that would assume that every time you sneeze, that it is some sort of demon coming out of you. You actually know that's where God bless you came from? Okay? Yeah, I hope you think about that later on when someone sneezes. That there was a system of belief at a time that when you sneezed, it was an evil spirit coming out of you and someone needed to bless you immediately. Okay? And so I don't think either of those camps are good camps to be able to land in. Okay? Like most things, right in the middle is usually kind of our... Uh, our path forward. And so demonic possession is a real thing. We see it in scripture. We see that this guy is possessed. He's unclean, not just because he lives among the tombs and he's a Gentile, but he's also unclean because he is possessed. That does not mean that every single time something bad happens to you, it's because you are possessed by a demon. Okay. Can we all just agree on that for a second? Other thing we need to recognize, and I know there's some new believers in the room, people who may not be as familiar with faith. If you have a saving faith in God, it is impossible for this to happen to you. It is impossible for a demon to come and take residence up inside of you. Why? It has everything to do with what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So when you come to have a saving faith in Jesus, we say that, that one of the things that happens, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you. Or if we say it to kids, we say, Jesus has come to live in your heart, right? But the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in you and it has sealed you for eternity. It's called the sealing of the Spirit. Okay? And so that being said, that means nothing can get in and the Holy Spirit's never gonna leave you. Meaning it is impossible for you to be indwelt by a demon. That being said, demons, even though they cannot possess you, they can still mess with you. Okay? All of us, I guarantee there is an enemy around you that is doing its best to be able to trip you up. Not from the inside, but from the outside. Encountering temptations, allowing that text message to go off just at the right time to make sure that you rear in that person, right? Whatever it may be, there are definitely still demonic forces going on. So let's keep going. Look at verse two. As soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, the guy runs up to him. He's naked. He's running to Jesus, probably filthy, full of cuts. This probably is an exciting thing to be able to walk up to, right? They get out of the hurricane, sudden dirty man possessed by demons is making his way right to Jesus and all of them. And it says that all of the shackles that, that they tried to put on this guy didn't work. So this guy is either absolutely yoked with muscles on top of muscles and allergic to clothing or something else is going on. Something else is happening. And you know that everybody in town knew this guy's name. 
You know, everybody knew exactly who this guy was. Everybody knows his name because we've tried some things. Let's just, you know what? We've tried to shackle him. We've tried to do all these things. Let's just let him do his thing, and we're going to do our thing over here. As long as we don't have to talk to him, as long as we don't have to interact with him, fine. I'm going to live my life over here peaceably, and he can go do his thing over there. They have tried everything in their power, everything they know how to do to change this guy, everything they know how to do to transform this guy, to subdue him, and they've had zero success, right? And I think this text really does help us realize that there's a real battle going on that we don't see. There's a supernatural battle happening. We see the same thing in Ephesians 6.12 when Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. He said, for our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this is where the battle goes on, right? For us, for me, to make light of it, maybe to not take it as seriously as I should, that's wrong, Because it's very clear in scripture that this is a real thing. And we need to understand that this Gentile community has been dealing with this demonic power for years, it sounds like. Okay, we can't can't quantify it specifically, but it seems to be a very, very long time. And there's nothing they could do to fight it. Right, so I want you to pause right here. We're going to take a time out. I just want you to think now to yourself, back to yourself. And I'm going to assume that nobody here is demon-possessed. But I'm also going to assume here that all of us have sin that we struggle with. That there is a real enemy who does his best to tempt us on a regular basis. And because of our sin nature that we have, we consistently, like a dog, returns to his vomit. We return to our sin. That's biblical. And so we consistently do that over and over. So I want you to think for a second, what sin is it that you feel like you cannot get past? That you have tried everything to get past it. I don't know if it's greed or envy or lust or pride or whatever, you fill in the blank. But what is it that that even when you think to yourself, you know what, that's it, I'm done. I'm not gonna do it anymore. And you just finished whatever sin it was that you were doing. Like, that's it, that's the last time. I'm never gonna do it again. And then 12 hours later, that same temptation marches its way forward. And and again, like a dog returns to its vomit, you go straight back to it. And you're like, yep, I'm back in. And then you do it again. And again, and on, and on, and on, and we get on this kind of just just carousel of, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to do it again, not going to do it, not going to do it. And we just keep going back to it for whatever reason it is that we just keep going back to it. You've tried everything you can possibly think of. You've been white-knuckling these things as tightly as you possibly can, no matter what you do. You can't seemingly do anything against it. This demon-possessed man was, was owned and powerless against that possession in his life. That's not to say every time you can't get beyond something, it's a demon. But we should recognize that apart from an all-powerful father, apart from an all-powerful deity, we have no shot against sin and evil in our lives. That's it. You can't do it. Because as much as we talk about the power of the demonic in here, and we're going to talk about the the all-powerful nature of deity, the all-powerful nature of God, the last piece of power that we need to talk about is how powerless each and every one of us are against it. 
There's nothing you can do. And I get it. We, all, we were all brought up in America for the most part, right? And you can do anything. And, and you know, you've got the picket fence and the two and a half kids and everything's, as long as you just try hard enough, you can make it happen. And so this concept of us never being good enough and not being powerful enough to implement substantial change is difficult. It's hard. Because all of us have been told since we were very young by our parents who were well-intentioned, you're so great. You can do it. Here's another trophy. And it's difficult for us to be able to wrap our minds around that. So for you, again, what is that sin that seemingly just consistently sneaks in that you don't want to have any part of, that you want to honor God with your life as much as you, can, as, much as you possibly can? And there are sins in our life that can own us, that can control us. And on our own accord, like I said, there's no freedom there. So yeah, there's demonic power. There's a sin that continues to permeate our lives. So how do we get free from it? The only time you see true freedom from sin is when people have finally stopped white-knuckling the situation and allow Jesus to restore them completely, allow the Holy Spirit to work through them, and then and only then is freedom found. You can't do it. You're powerless. In short, the only time freedom is found from sin is not from the power of man. It's not from more sin. It's not through white knuckling. It's through the power of deity, the power of God. That's it. And that's what we see happen in verse 6. Because when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down at his feet. This possessed man sees him, runs down the hill, falls at his feet, cries out, what do you want from me? Why are you here? And the demons know, right? They understand what's going on. Their eschatology, that's the theology of end times, understanding of end times, it's good. Like they know what's about to go down. Because what happens in the book of Revelation, the, end, the, the, the inside of Revelation is Jesus comes back and he rounds up all the demons, he rounds up Satan, and he throws them all into the abyss. He throws them all into hell where they are tormented for day and night. And now you're thinking, wait, I thought demons and Satan lived in hell. They don't like it? Like they run around, it's hot, they got their little pitchforks, they're having a good time in hell? No, that is not true. They, Jesus says their punishment forever is he is going to throw them into an abyss forever. Apart from God, apart from anything good, apart from what they wanted to accomplish, their pridefulness in their own lives. And that's what's going to happen. So this demon is freaked out right now because he thinks that time has come. And so he falls down in front of Jesus. And it ends with, 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 with um, them having a conversation with Jesus. And, and they're freaking out. They think the, the time has come for Jesus to come and reign. The time has come for them to be cast out. They're trying to figure out if this is the end. So they know and declare who Jesus is. They know they are powerless against an all-powerful deity. They know the power they have doesn't hold a candle to the Son of God. And this is where our hope lies. That the power of deity is the highest power that there is. These demons are begging Jesus not to send them into hell. So much that they're like, uh, uh, send me, just send me into those pigs over there. That'll work. That's not, that's not hell. And so Jesus says at that point, what is your name? And they say, my, knee, my name is Legion. I, I feel like when you read this, you have to read it correctly, right? Like, my name is Legion, for we are many. It's the only time you would ever do that in Scripture is like that portion but this is significant because a Roman legion would have been made up of four to 6,000 soldiers. That's a lot. 
And that's not to say there were, there were 6,000 demons living inside of this guy, probably a little bit hyperbolic, but there's a ton of demons who have taken up residence in this guy. So no wonder the community could do nothing about this. But when the power of deity shows up on the scene, everything changes. Everything changes. Jesus shows up on the scene, he speaks, and lives are transformed forever. You want to know your takeaway for the morning? That's it. Is when Jesus shows up on the scene, his words are heard and heeded, lives are transformed forever. And that's true in a microcosm here. All right, Jesus works the same today as he did then. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus casts the demons into these pigs. He gets rid of the issue once and for all, and the pigs are all collectively destroyed. 2,000 pigs. That's a big herd. I'm not a rancher, but I can't assume whoever's herd that was was very happy about that. Right? 2,000 pigs. And so, of course, like my mind went on a rabbit trail, like, I wonder what we know about this, this herd of pigs. And so there's a whole bunch of theories surrounding it. The, the most notable one is that, that this was a communal herd of pigs. That the entire community, like, you need a pig, take a pig. Have a pig, leave a pig. Right? Like the whole penny thing. Like, that's kind of how this worked. Make sure the pigs are continuing to have babies so we can eat the pigs later on. And so most people believe that Jesus completely and totally decimated this town's way of life. The 2,000 pigs. There's one outlying theory that I thought was great. That they were like, you know what, but the pigs probably would have been pretty well preserved. So they probably went down, waded into the sea, and got those pigs and still ate them. Like, I don't know about you, but like demon-possessed pigs isn't like the highest food that I want to try on my list. Maybe like cook it a little bit longer than you were in the first place. I don't know. Right, but, but, but that's what happens, and, and this is what happens with sin as well, is when sin is in our life, it consistently does its best to destroy us. Like this demon, with these demons went into these pigs, and they did their best to destroy these pigs. And sometimes we placate the entire thing regarding our sin and assume that, you know what, it's just my sin, so it's not hurting anybody else but me. And some people really even enjoy their sin, downplay it, assume that it isn't that bad, but your sin wants to destroy you. And then we look at the power of God, specifically even in this story. The pigs leave, the demons are gone, and then we have a man sitting there who has encountered the living God. And all of these pigs, as they ran off the cliff, people are like, uh-oh, that's all of our food. That's literally all we have. I'm going to go tattle on Jesus. So they go back into the city. All these people start coming down. And in verse 15, they see a man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Right? I can just imagine like the before and after, like the juxtaposition of the two. You have a crazy man with hair out to here who's naked and cuts all over his body. And then you have the man sitting next to him was like leaning against the boat, like casually in a white robe and his hair is combed, right? At least that's what I think someone in their right mind looked like at the time. But that's, but that's what we see. And that's transformation. That's life transformation. And not just his outward appearance. The cool thing to me is what he wanted after that. He wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to spend time with Jesus. Not only did his life change, his desires changed. What he wanted in life completely and totally changed. That's what Jesus does. He takes the sinner and he transformed him. To spend time with God, with a loving God who has given you freedom over everything. That's transformation. That's new desire. And so how about you? Like when sin is done, 
When sin has done absolutely nothing but put you face down in regret and remorse, what's your attitude? All right, my hope would be that once you have said yes to Jesus, you took all that sin, took all of that sin and you gave it to Jesus and you came into a saving relationship with him. And now that you would desire to be with him forever, to know him, to spend time with him, to be changed and transformed by him. That would be the hope. This man who was possessed was powerless against these supernatural forces. And the time will come, just like the demons in the story, where you will stand before an all-powerful deity, and rather than begging him to go anywhere else other than hell, that you would be confident, clothed, and in your right mind because you know that Jesus came and died for you, and you have done nothing since then but do your best to honor and please him. And when you fell short, you came back to him. And when you fell short, you came back to him. Regardless of our powerlessness, God chose us humans to be redeemed he chose us to die for not because of our power not because of our greatness not because of anything we have done simply because he loved us first and he loved us best and so i'm going to end with just reading a portion of scripture that's it then we're going to pray and dads i'll get you out of here to your naps This is what it says at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's talking about Satan, the enemy, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the kicker, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thanks for dads. And thanks for what they mean in our lives. The steadiness, the even keel, all of those things that equate to dads. But Father, as I even think about Father's Day, we just, man, I think about you as well and what you have done for us. And think about your son and what you were willing to do and sacrifice in your son for our behalf. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would recognize that sin that's in our life, we would recognize the powerlessness that we have against it, and that we would be willing to give it to you. And that's not to say, Father, we'll never mess up. It's not to say we won't fall short, but that is to say that you are more powerful 
than anything else. You are more sovereign than anything else. You are above it all. And so, God, we just give it to you this morning. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if, if you have yet to say yes to Jesus, if you have yet to come into a saving faith with him and make a, a profession of faith, and you think to yourself, I, like, I've tried everything, and I can't get beyond this sin, I can't get beyond this brokenness, I can't get beyond these things that seemingly control my life, and maybe, maybe it's Jesus that I need, and you're feeling that burning inside of you, that Holy Spirit prompting you. If that's you this morning, simply pray along with me the ABCs. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. And C, I choose to follow him every single day. We love you, Father. In your son's name we pray, amen.